you are new around here, this podcast talks about infertility and different pathways to parenthood. I'm your host, Millie Brooks, coming at you live from the San Francisco Bay Area. And it's February 2022. It's our Valentine's Day episode where we're going to make all your crazy Cupid dreams come true. That's a lie. I don't even know how I would do that. Anyways, Valentine's Day is the dumb, useless holiday unless you're newly dating somebody and then it's really, you know, a time to test everybody's romance skills. Anyways, I digress. Today we have Janine. Kolazinski on the show today. Welcome, Janine. Hi. Hi, Melly. It's so great to have you on the show. And again, I really am awful with people's last names. And I have written your last name phonetically on my piece of paper, and I still messed up. Kolazinski. Correct. I love it. So I'm so glad you reached out to me about doing an embryo donation episode. We have done an embryo adoption episode with Kelsey Wallace, all about her journey to pursue embryo adoption, but we've never done a show that focuses on the other side of that same coin, meaning you have reached your family goals and you have some embryos left over. And what do you do with those remaining embryos? Why don't we start, Janine, with you giving us a snapshot of your TTC journey? Sure. So my husband and I met in 2013, and we got married in 2017. And a month before our wedding, uh, I actually went in for my annual wellness exam, where they ended up finding some abnormal cells. So... They um, wanted to run some tests, and so when I got back from my honey honeymoon, I went in for a copal, which is where they remove cells from your cervix and test them to see um, what's going on, and they came back with, I don't remember the exact strains, but some precancerous cells. So we were going to have to do a LEAP procedure to remove those cells from my cervix. So at this time, I also decided to get out birth control because I'd been on it for about 12 years straight, you know, actively trying not to get pregnant. (laughs) So I figured this was probably the right time to, while I was going through these other things to, to, you know, stop the birth control. I had the LEAP procedure in January of 2018. And by April, I still had not had a period. And so I went in and they did an ultrasound and they found that my cervix had scarred shut from the LEAP procedure. So I wasn't able to have a, have a cycle. So they opened, opened it up, which was a very painful experience. You know, the, you're not under, <laughs> you're awake for that. And they said, okay, check back in 90 days and let's see how it goes. Well, 90 days come and go, nothing happens. So they prescribe Provera and again, nothing happens. So we go back in and my cervix has scarred shut again, so we have to open it again. Uh, this happens one more time where in October where they had to open it again. Um, and by this point, I was having, I didn't have as much confidence in my OB. So I switched to a new OB in the same practice, though. And she she did another ultrasound and was suspecting that I had PCOS. 
but she didn't want to confirm it until we knew what was going on with my cycle because was I not having one because it was scarred shut or was I not having one because I wasn't ovulating? So, and I have been doing OPKs, so I was pretty sure I wasn't ovulating. Uh, in January of 2019, uh, we had to take Provera again, and I did have a, a uh, withdrawal bleed, so that was good. My cervix was not closed shut. So we moved on to a cycle of Clomid, where then I had a, I started, um, I had a withdrawal bleed 18 days later and no confirmation of ovulation. So at that point, I was like, well, I'm not going to keep taking Clomid for six months. I'm going to find an RE now because it's been over a year and she doesn't specialize in PCOS. So, you know, I knew I wanted to move on. So as most people know, REs, most of them have a wait list and anywhere between three to six months. So I think it was about nine weeks before I could get in with the first RE on my list. And I had kept a a, another consultation with another one who was like 16 weeks out and saw him. He confirmed, yes, you have PCOS. Um, let's do a mock cycle. Let's kind of see, you know, what's going on in there. And after that mock cycle, like my lining, everything looked good. And after the mock cycle, I did have my first confirmed ovulation and cycle in 16 months. Mm. So that was like, Oh, can my body do it? <laughs> But then I didn't have one again. So um, the my first RE originally wanted us to do IUIs after doing blood tests and a semen analysis. And um, my husband's semen analysis came back and he has low morphology and motility, but he had a high count and a high, I don't remember what the fourth one is, but they wanted to do IUIs. And I said, well, you we don't even know if my ovaries, um, not my ovaries, my tubes are open. So I would want to do an HSG before I'm going to commit to, you know, spending the money on an IUI. Uh, And then we went to go do the, so during this time while I was waiting for the HSG, I did a cycle with letrozole and I only had one follicle. uh, And by the time I did the HSG, the radiologist, it, we couldn't complete it because the radiologist couldn't get inside my cervix because of the scar tissue. Mm. So it was like, uh, okay, another, another failed attempt. And so what we ended up doing was going through the RE and they did, they call it a cyst, I think. So it's a little, I don't know, it's not, it's, they don't use the x-ray machine, but they had to go in with special tools. And again, it was painful because they had to open it enough to be able to get in there and then they put saline in. And so luckily we were able to confirm that my tubes were open. There was no issues, but you know, my, my cervix kept, you know, closing up on us. Mm -hmm. So, um, nothing can get in there. And, but you know, I did, I did three letrozole cycles with the RE and they just kind of kept pushing, you know, for IUIs. And I just, I really didn't feel like that was going to give us any better odds based on our semen analysis results. Mm -hmm. So, um, were you wanting to just kind of make the leap to IVF or where were you, where did you feel like you really wanted to put your energy? So it, it's not that nobody really wants to do IVF, but at this point I just felt like it had been almost two years now and we hadn't made any headway. And I, I just wasn't convinced with the care and looking at the numbers. Like when you look at the, you know, World Health Organizations for Semen Analysis and the IUI success rates, 
our like our numbers were not really within that range. And so I was like, I, my insurance doesn't cover IUIs and it was going to be $2,500. And he said it could take three. And I was like, well, if I'm going to spend $7,500 on three IUIs, I'd rather, I'd rather spend <laughs> and go for IVF, but not that I wanted to do it. If you know what Absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. I mean, we all know this isn't the yeah. chosen path of anybody, <laughs> but you, you clearly had a, you know, a goal of trying to get mm-hmm. pregnant and you felt that IVF would probably give you the most success. Correct. And then, um, I had had a friend who had done IVF with a RE in Arizona and I'm actually from Arizona. So at the time I lived in California though. And so I set up a consultation with him because I just wasn't feeling I was getting great care for my current RE and I had left three appointments crying. So I was like, well, this isn't a good, this isn't a good uh, fit anymore. So I had a consult with the RE in Arizona and we spoke with him and it was, it was nice and refreshing because I felt like he was being more just upfront about, you know, our situation, our diagnosis. And he used the analogy, and I've told this story before, where he said, imagine you're at a, you know, in a crowded room with 100,000 people and somebody shouts fire and 75% of people just start running in all different directions. And then 25% of people just stop and go in circles. And then the other, and then, you know, there's like 5% that head towards the exit, but they can't get there because people are in their way. He goes, that's pretty much what's happening with your eggs, your cervix and his semen. Mm. <laughs> and I said, well, I was at Beyonce Coachella 2018. So I do know exactly how that feels. <laughs> um, and that's what I told him. And he laughed. He thought it was really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so from, you know, looking over all the numbers, we decided, okay, we're going to do IVF in November of 2019. We had had a couple of trips planned before that. So we wanted to do those before we started. And, um, I, you know, we traveled to Arizona and we stemmed and I stemmed for nine days and it was really emotional for me because it was the first time I ever really, like I had responded to Letrozole once I had, you know, I had a follicle, but this was the first time actually seeing my body respond. And so, uh, I think it was day seven scan I had, they were seeing 22 follicles between both ovaries. And I was like, okay, this is good because I had PCOS. We knew I was going to have a higher number, but typically that means you have less mature. So, you know, it kind of gave me, I was feeling good. Um, And then we had our retrieval and afterwards I'm waking up and he popped over and opened the door and says, Janine, do you know how many, do they tell you how many eggs you got yet? And I said, no, I don't know. And he said, we retrieved 37 eggs. Mm. And like, we were blown away because we had never seen that many on my scans. So, uh, we, we got the call that night that, um, all 37 were mature and that 33 had fertilized, Mm. but our, and we did do ICSI, um, and our clinic only does day five updates. So then, you know, we're in the the IVF hunger games of, okay, what's going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on day five ended up being a Saturday. So it's like noon and I hadn't heard from the clinic. I'm starting to kind of stress like, oh no, this is, this is not going to be good news. So the embryologist called and said that um, they had frozen 20 embryos and they were still watching nine. Wow. And wow. so they would be going into the lab the next day 
to make sure that they could freeze any that could be frozen. So the next day we got the call that they froze seven more and she made the joke. Um, well, it looks like you're going to have to buy a bus now. Oh wow! And it was like, Oh, it kind of hit us that what, yeah. how did we, how did we freeze this many? Like what happened here? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, um, you know, where that, where that left us and we did PGS testing. So we opted to biopsy them all um, because having P2S, we didn't know the quality of my eggs. I'd never been pregnant before. I've never had a pregnancy scare. So we just said, let's biopsy them all and we'll see what happens. We'll send eight for PGS testing. So we sent eight for testing and five came back normal. And then we, we got the go to prep for transfer in January of 2020 and we transferred two embryos and they both stuck. So we now have boy girl twins. Wow. Wow. Okay. So um are you at the point where you feel like your family is complete? So this is kind of a a loaded question because I I don't feel if we if we don't have any more children or try, I won't feel incomplete. Um but being pregnant and then having, you know, preeclampsia and having babies in the NICU during COVID, I have these, I'm working through emotions of where I would feel sad if I was never pregnant again, mm-hmm. but I, but I don't feel incomplete. Like if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realize that me wanting to be pregnant again is not necessarily about the baby, mm-hmm. but about being pregnant. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, we are, we are most likely done mm-hmm. <laughs> building our family. And we do still have three tested embryos left that we are holding on to until we've made that um, 100% decision. And But we also wanted to start donating our untested embryos because they are biopsied. And if any um, possible recipients wanted to test, they would have to do it within three years of being biopsied because otherwise the biopsies would be um, no longer valid and they would be discarded. Okay, so let's go back a little bit to when the concept of embryo donation came up between you and your husband. So it was pretty much uh, right after the fertilization report. Um, when it when we first talked about it was, okay, yeah, we're, what are we going to do with this many embryos? So let's see how the PGS testing goes and then we'll reevaluate. Then it was, okay, well, let's see how transfer goes <laughs> and reevaluate. And then it was, okay, well, now what do we do? Because we're pregnant with twins and we'd reached viability and yeah, we're, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you ended up testing how many though? So you tested five, five came back normal. Yeah. So we tested eight. Okay. Um, and five came back normal. Okay. And then how many do you have that are untested? We had 19 that were untested. And since then we have tested a certain amount for our recipients. And, um, then we have, uh, some, a couple untested left as well, um, that we will be, we'll be looking for another recipient. Okay. So there's 19 that you kind of just sort of divided up and are like, we're testing some, we're, keeping some untested and we are handing them off to somebody else. Correct. Is that how I understand it? Okay. So we just, 
We, so our clinic uses a stricter grading scale. Um, I'm probably not going to explain it perfectly well, but it's, it doesn't have a name, but it's different than the Gardner scale because the Gardner scale typically rates an ABC or I think it's good, fair, and poor. Well, this grading system actually rates it in six categories. So in the Gardner scale, most A's are actually B's and then most C's are actually not transferable. So, um, we what we did was we took our grading scale and we just you know if there was a b's or bb's we just counted how many there were of each and then split them into three buckets Mm -hmm. and that's how so we just made each bucket basically as even as possible um for if a future recipient wanted to test them got it got it well where did you start with your search in trying to find recipients so i actually joined first i joined a facebook group, a private group in January, 2020, actually, um, pretty shortly after our transfer, because I, and I was definitely a lurker. I wasn't, I was like, okay, what is all, what is this about? How would we even go about this? Um, so I joined that group and then I think there was a point maybe a couple months later where, um, somebody who I'm friends with that went with my clinic, um, she was looking for donated embryos because they they weren't sure if they were going to do another transfer or another retrieval. And um, so I had reached out saying, you know, let me know if you guys move forward with that. Um, we are planning on donating in the future. Uh, they ended up going through another IVF tree retrieval. So we didn't end up uh, moving forward with them. And then, uh, then there was in the summer last year, um, one of my friends that I met through the infertility community on Instagram, she had posted that that was probably going to be their next step and they were considering it. So I had reached out to her and let her know that we'd be donating probably in early 2021. So if she, you know, wanted to, you know, discuss further to reach out and let me know. And then we kind of just paused for a little bit at that point, um, because we had the babies in August and they were, they were eight weeks early. So we were just kind of going through that. Um, and I did start contacting my, my clinic and just kind of finding out, okay, where the, where are the biopsy stored? How do we, how do we go about transferring them out? Cause my clinic actually isn't set up for anything to do with embryo donations. So everything has to be done in my name or transferred out to their clinic or, you know, a, a recipient's clinic that accepts known donors uh, before we could move forward. So I just kind of needed to get our ducks in a row of what do we need to do it on our side before we can even, you know, move forward with, with matching privately. Got it. Got it. So um, like what kind of relationship do you have with the people that have adopted your embryos? So the, the couple that I met through um, Instagram because we had been friends for probably like a year plus, um, you know, we still talk where we're, we're friends, we have a relationship. And then the second couple that I met, I, we matched on the Facebook private group. Um, when we had read their profile, there was just a lot of similarities between them and us. And, uh, so we reached out, we had a zoom call, you know, within a couple months decided we wanted to move forward. And so same thing, um, we're, we're all kind of in different parts of the U.S., so we communicate, you know, regularly and catch up and check in and see how everything's going. Um, but it's, I guess you could say we have 
what we consider a semi-open adoption where uh, any any future possible um, children could always reach out to whether it's us or our children um, if they had any questions and we would be open to that. Um, the recipients can contact us at any time if they have any questions about um, medical history or, you know, concerns. It, you know, we, we're open for all of that. And obviously, you know, one of them I was already friends with. So the friendship was, you know, I wanted it to continue. So it did. Um, and then any potential friendships would just be welcomed as well. Cause you know, it's a, it's an intimate process that you're going through and it's special. So, you know, want to be mm-hmm. open. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, in a lot of, um, conversations I'm having with donor conceived children, um, you know, embryo adoption, it's important. The medical history is important, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is going to probably maybe borderline on kind of a, you know, uh, excuse the ignorance of this question, but it must be asked. Um, Is it hard knowing that there are children out there with the exact same DNA as your children, but you are not their parents? So for us, no, not at all. Um, we, we created the embryos, but someone else carried them and brought them to life. Like we, we are not their parents. Um, you know, we don't think genetically at all that it gives us a right to any information about them unless they want the relationship. So that's why I'm saying it's semi-open. Cause you know, we don't want, like, we don't want any confusion for them. Um, you know, and the recipients that, you know, it's, they're theirs. Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, that there is, um, I think that there is, it's hard to not feel so much attachment to your embryos when you go through the IVF process. So I, I know from my own experience and then from people that I've talked to, you know, detaching yourself from feeling a, a paternal connection to them is is very um it's a a mind there's a lot of mental gymnastics that are involved in that um did you did you did that come up for you so i am definitely more attached to my tested embryos um and i don't know i think that has a lot to do with because i knew we were always going to donate and that there's no way we could ever have given, you know, an opportunity for 27 embryos. Oh, gosh, so, Janine, um, like, like there's just, there's just no you way. You would so. need a school bus. You would need a school <laughs> exactly, bus. Exactly. Exactly. So for us, it was kind of, um, I, I became more attached to what we tested first because to me, like those are mine. Um, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And then the untested, the, the plan was always to donate unless we had needed them, of course. Um, mm that was the plan. So, and, you know, I know this is kind of a controversial topic, but for me, you know, the, I can look at those embryos and their cells. Mm. And for me, I I don't attach it to, you know, a a person yet. And so for me, they're possibilities and being able to give somebody that opportunity, that possibility to, to transfer and grow it themselves. That's, 
you know, that that's a beautiful gift we can do. And so, yeah, those, the 19 untested are, I was able to separate that because that was the plan from the beginning. Yeah. What kind of misconceptions have you come up against throughout this process? So I think because I'm on the donor side, it is a little different. I'm assuming most of the misconceptions are probably on the adoption side. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't really think I have that many, but you know, it is, you do have to go through, um, you know, the legal part where you have a contract drawn up and you agree to terms and, you know, what's going to happen. It's very similar to IVF consents where you have to determine, okay, what happens if they're done building their family? What happens um, if they were to separate? It's, it's very similar to IVF consents. It's just from a legal standpoint, um, they consider it, you are donating property. So your mm-hmm. embryos are property. Mm-hmm. They're not, um, it's not, it's not actually seen as an adoption. Like we use the term in the community as adoption, but legally it's not an adoption because you, the recipients are the ones who are going to carry and birth the baby. And it's theirs from the beginning. I appreciate you clearing the air on that because um, my next question is when they have full, you know, rights and ownership over the embryos, what happens when they are complete with their family and they have leftover embryos? So we have it in the contracts that there will be a discussion where together um, they they have the option to either transfer them back to us and then it just they just come back to us or we can find another recipient together. But they're... Um, yeah, there. I don't think we have the clause in there that they can discard or uh, donate to research. That they would come back to us and we would make the final decision on that. Got it. Got it. Wow, so many layers, <laughs> so many layers of things that you you don't even think about. You know, one of the big things for me um, that came up just in doing all of the IVF paperwork was what happens in a situation like a death or a divorce. Mm-hmm. Was there any types of those clauses in there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it's all covered in there to make sure that everybody is protected that, um, again, it's from a legal standpoint, it's looked at as property. So it's just making sure that that would be taken care of in, you know, in an unforeseen circumstance. Mm-hmm. So what makes your blood boil about infertility? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, I mean, really just how isolating and lonely it is. Um, But I think it even what makes me the most mad about it is how unexpected it is for most people and how little I understood about my body. Um, So in the first year when I was dealing with... um, my cervix issues, I had joined a subreddit on, uh, you know, trying for a baby on Reddit and, uh, has started learning a lot about my body. And I picked up taking charge of your fertility and I read the book and I started tracking my cycle with fertility friend. And I just, I was really upset that at 31 years old, I was finding out what a real cycle is and that all those years on birth control, I was not having a real cycle. I was having 
a withdrawal bleed because I was on a hormonal birth control that did not, you know, that theoretically is preventing ovulation. And so I, you know, most likely had PCOS my whole life, or I probably did. I don't know. You know, once I kind of had the diagnosis, it was like, okay, solution. That's kind of where my mind went. I didn't want to go in the past and figure out what, (laughs) what happened. Um, but I didn't really understand how things worked. Um, and I think that's, that's what makes me the most mad is that, you know, I can't speak for other countries, but in the U S sexual education need, like we just need a better, better education around it. And, um, you know, abstinence only is not the only way to teach it. People need to understand how things mm-hmm. work. Um, I love it. I think that's what probably makes me the most upset is like, why this didn't have to feel like I was getting hit with a ton of bricks, yeah. but it did because I had no clue that I wasn't ovulating. Yeah. Oh gosh. If you don't ovulate, sperm can't meet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if anybody is listening to this episode who has embryos left over, do you have any advice for them? So if you want to match privately, um, you know, I can only, I know there's a couple of websites. There's the NRFA, which stands for, I don't know it off the top of my head, but NRFA, they have, um, it's kind of, you know, like an online dating profile. You, you create a profile, you match there. Um, then there's the Facebook private groups. You can start there and the Facebook private group, um, has a lot of resources about clinics, where to start decision trees. Like there's a lot of info there to get you started. I love it. Um, I feel like, do you feel like your recipients are an extension of your family? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, it, I, I really value the friendships I've created with them. Um, and so I guess you could say it's kind of like a cousin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like you, you're, you share something now. Um, you know, and I, I just, I really value the, the relationship I have That's with them. That's great. That's great. Janine, anything else that you want to add to this important conversation? You know, I told people on Instagram that I was talking to you today. Somebody who, somebody responded who is now pregnant with um, uh, embryo that they adopted. You know, this is a conversation that um, a lot of people are, you know, uh, you know, there's we need to create more of the conversation, I guess, that people understand their options. Is there anything else you want to contribute? Uh, yeah. I mean, if it, a lot of people don't know about this option because yeah, it's not widely talked about. And if you don't want to match privately and you want to match anonymously, there's, there are um, tons of clinics around that, um, that they only accept anonymous donations and they don't give any information. I think they'll give like the bare minimums, maybe age, age the embryos were created, um, ethnicity, you know, some of that information, but for the most part, it's very bare bones. So you can do it anonymously where, you know, you don't know any information or you can match privately and, you know, have a relationship. Um, you know, like Kelsey on your, your embryo adoption episode, she's really close with her donors. So you can, you can really, you can choose how you would like your story to go. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Janine. How can people connect with you and watch you flourish in this world with your, your twins? 
so I do, I do have an Instagram. Um, my handles at moving mountains and it's an OG account, uh, opened in 2010, maybe 2011. And it is a reference to Dr. Seuss. So, um, yeah, I, for a while I was, my content was heavily around IVF and infertility and just education. And, um, then COVID happened and, you know, then pregnancy and now motherhood. And I'm not as active as I was just because I do work, work full time and two toddlers, but, um, I am, I am an open book about our story and the process. And if there's any, you know, questions I can always answer. I obviously only have the experience from the donor privately matching side, but, you know, we, we've, we've now done this twice and we are looking for, we're currently um, looking for a third recipient. So. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your strength and your hope. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bums, and see you next week.